Welcome to the Sing When You're Losing podcast, a podcast about resilience. I believe that setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. Across this series, I interview athletes, coaches, managers, trainers, and more so that we can glean from their wisdom and learn from their stories for how to sing when you're losing. In this episode, I get the privilege of interviewing Dr. Mustafa Sarkar. Mustafa is Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Psychology at Nottingham Trent University. He's doing a great work in research on resilience, individual, team, and organizational. Resilience is an overused term and often misunderstood. I loved having this conversation as we discussed a fuller meaning of resilience and why this is so important. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did having it. This interview was done via Zoom, so please bear with us on the occasional lack of sound quality. Now, get comfortable and join me, your host, Buddy Owen, as we all learn to sing when you're losing. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. It is uh, great to be back with you this week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Peter Scrivener, the WASP legend. I hope you've had a chance to look him up uh, and uh, look into some of the fundraising that he's doing for the, the Wasp Legends charity as well. This week, this is the uh, a slightly different type of guest this week. So uh, my guest this week isn't an elite athlete himself, but he does work with elite athletes. And uh, I can't tell you how excited I am about the conversation that we're going to have. Uh, and I'll go ahead and let you know now, I, I do try to get people on the podcast who are not Liverpool supporters. So I thought, we'll go to Nottingham, we'll find someone in Nottingham, and surely, surely they won't support Liverpool. But Dr. Mustafa Sakar is a senior lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Nottingham Trent University, and he's a Liverpool supporter. How amazing is that? So Mustafa, it is great to have you on the podcast today. How are you this morning? Hi, buddy. Yes, thank you very much for having me. And yes, nice to nice to be able to celebrate the Liverpool Championship a few days since the the win. So and yeah, thank you very much for having me on and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, great. No, great to have you. And as I say, it is it's my pleasure to have you on here this morning. So you're in Nottingham, but tell us a bit about your background. Where are you from? How did you end up at Nottingham? And why are you a Liverpool? Yeah, I am. Um, so I'm originally from uh, London. So I've been born and brought up in, in London. Uh, my family are originally from, from India, but kind of been, been brought and brought up in the UK myself. And in terms of my um, in terms of my background, I guess I had, a, I had an interesting kind of journey where um, my initial application to university was to do law and um, I didn't get into any law schools and I had to make a decision then about what to do. So I, I had to take a gap year. During my gap year, I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers and was a, a tax consultant. And it was a great experience because it basically pushed you down to the deep end straight away. And during my gap year, whilst I was working for PwC, I came across sports science. I read, I read about, I don't know if your listeners will be aware of this particular person, but I read about uh, Barry Cowan, 
Um, Barry Cowan was a, a British tennis player who was about 250th in the world at the time. And he took Pete Sampras, uh, who was number one at the time, to five sets at Wimbledon. I remember that match. And um, Barry was asked in this interview, where I, read it, where I read it in a magazine, he was asked, you know, how did he do so well? And he attributed his performance to a sports psychologist. And I thought to myself at the time, I thought, I like sport. I like science. So sports science seemed to be, a, you know, an interesting option. I then did a little bit of research in that, in that area. And then I applied to do sports science at university whilst on my gap year. I ended up choosing Loughborough University and I did my undergraduate in sports science at Loughborough. Uh, and then at that, at, after my undergraduate, I was still working for PwC during my summers at university. And I had to make a, a call then about do I, I was then offered a full-time job at PwC. And I had to make a, a big call then about do I then pursue my interest in sports psychology or do I take a, a job at PwC? And that was a really difficult decision. And in the end, I decided to, to pursue my master's in sports psychology rather than going down the kind of the tax and accountancy route. And again, I, I think with hindsight, I think for me, I'm, I'm really, really happy with that decision. I, you know, I, in the end, pursued my, my passion and pretty much not looked back since. So I ended up getting my master's in sports psychology at Loughborough. Um, I did my PhD at, at Loughborough. Um, I then went on to do a two-year research role at the University of Gloucestershire. And then I've been now in Nottingham Trent for five years, since 2015, as a lecturer and then a senior lecturer in um, sports psychology. And I guess my role at Nottingham Trent is a combination of teaching and research in sports psychology, but I also at the same time do consultancy with some of our scholarship athletes, but also some external and private consultancy with individuals, teams, and organizations. Specifically, well, one of my main areas, both in terms of my research and my consultancy, is, is looking at resilience in, in athletes and teams. So, yeah, that's been kind of my, my kind of journey. Uh, I guess I, I got into sports psychology partly because of that kind of um, journey from not getting into law school and then obviously hearing about sports science but I guess on a, on a personal level as well I was an aspiring elite athlete my, my main sport growing up was cricket and I was a technically and tactically very very good cricketer and I was a leg spin bowler and I was very very good for my age group you know to the extent that I probably was on the fringe of maybe county level but one thing I was not very good at was my psychological kind of makeup uh, I really, really struggled with expectations, particularly from parents, particularly my dad, but also really struggled with taking on board feedback from coaches. So it, it just got me really interested in why, you know, why was it that, why is it that some athletes are able, you know, not necessarily the best technically and tactically, but are able to perform brilliantly under pressure in, in competition, whereas someone, some others like myself, technically and tactically excellent but psychologically just found it very difficult to perform on, on you know on, on pitch and one of my other my, one of my other difficulties was taking training you know taking my skills in training which I was brilliant and able to do but then transferring that to to competition so I guess from a personal level that's also what got me interested in in kind of um, sports psychology as well.
Yeah, that's interesting. That that last point you just made. Uh, when I talk to uh, footballers and former footballers, one of the questions I ask them is, "Can you tell me? Are you willing to tell me who was the best player you played in training, who could just never actually do it on the pitch?" Um, and some of them are honest uh, <laughs> in saying that. So, um, and then some of them don't want to answer that question because of who they might offend. Uh, but what, so what was it for you that what was that sticking point then from being able to take it from the training ground on to match day as it were yeah it's a really interesting one um i haven't really quite kind of got to the bottom of it i some would possibly argue and again def depending on people's definitions of it I, I think there's elements of you know choking under pressure definitely um there's a lot of tightness in my in my body, which, you know, particularly with a leg spin bowler, with my kind of, you know, with my particular expertise, you do need to be quite uh, free in your movements, um, which allow you to do, you know, execute your skills in terms of, particularly with me being able to turn the ball, uh, which was, again, a skill that I had, was brilliant at, was being able to turn it a huge amount, which would obviously, you know, uh, make it very very difficult for batsmen but my, my biggest area was you know there's no point being able to turn it if you're not very consistent in terms of where you pitch the ball and I you know based on the kind of I guess the, the restriction or basing on, on the tightness of the muscles which I think definitely um, the origin of that is psychological because as I said probably the two areas which I found difficult was the expectations from, from, from parents and particularly my dad and again, I, I don't want to put a, a downer on that because my, my family and my parents have been very, very supportive, um, both in terms of my career journey and everything else. And, and also my, my sporting interest. You know, I, I think one of the big areas that I often talk to when I, when I was coaching cricket, when I talk to parents, I think one of the really important things is for young people to have a, a diverse range of sporting experiences and my parents provided that brilliantly they took me to football to cricket to swimming to loads and loads of different sports so i've got a lot to be thankful for from a, a sporting perspective but I, I have spoken to my dad kind of since then and he does agree you know looking back at it he he would always i still remember remember this quite vividly he would always walk around the boundary when i was playing um, and he did that mainly actually for exercise, just so he could walk around whilst I was playing. But actually that put on some pressure on me and we'd always have conversations prior. You know, he, he came from a quick cricketing background. Um, he would always be a, like a coach as well to some extent, which again, I'm, I'm not always, I don't think I'm, I'm a fan really of parents trying to coach. I think that should be left to the coach. So I, I guess yeah, there, there were a variety of different factors, I think, you know, um, and, I, you know, if I, at the time when I was playing, you know, 14, 15 years ago, sports psychology really wasn't a massive, uh, massive area. Whereas potentially if I was working with a sports psychologist, some of my psychological skills that I would have developed around relaxation and things like that may have potentially helped in terms of that process. So, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint it on one particular thing, but I think there are a variety of things that may have contributed to that not being able to translate training. Yeah, I think um, if you look into the statistics for counselors and therapists, the number of counselors and therapists that are in desperate need of counseling and therapy is quite large. 
So, uh, so for someone who probably needed a sports psychologist quite badly to go into sports psychology, isn't anything new. <laughs> yeah. Lots of us do that, don't we? And it's, and it's also really interesting, if you speak to sports psychologists, how many have got into the profession because they were aspiring elite athletes and um, didn't quite make it for psychological reasons. So I yeah. think that's also really, when you speak to sports psychologists, I, I wouldn't say that that's the case for every uh, every no. single person, but there, there are a lot of people I, I know who I've spoken to who have got into the, that field because... Uh, not because actually they were good psychologically, it was because they, they, you know, they were something that they really struggled with. So I think that, as you said, that's quite an interesting, quite an interesting uh, area. Yeah. But also, you, you don't have to be good at the sport that you're coaching someone in psychologically, do you? I know um, I've been coaching a, a couple of golfers, particularly around putting and calming their minds during putting or chipping. Um, I'm not a very good golfer. Uh, I, I love golf, but I'm not great at it. And so some of their friends would see me coaching them and know that I'm not a good, and they're like, why is, why, why are you working? You can't golf. Um, and, it's, it's, uh, a, it's, a really, like, it's a really interesting debate point. I, I talk to my, my students about this in terms of, we, have, we always have a debate about whether or not you need to be good at the sport to be able to be a good sports psychologist in that area. And I've kind of come to the conclusion that, um, no, I, I think it definitely helps. Uh, it gives you a, it gives you a head start if you are good at that sport and, and probably athletes will, you'll be able to build rapport with your athletes a little bit quicker. But I certainly wouldn't say that it doesn't, it's not a cause and effect thing that just because you're good at the sport will automatically make you a good sports psychologist. I think if you've not had that background in that sport, as long as you, I'm always very open and honest with my athletes about the fact if I'm not, if I haven't come from that background and um, I think that also makes a difference, but also taking the time to really research the sport. So you actually understand the sport, you immerse yourself in the sport, so you're able to build that rapport, understand the terminology and the language that athletes are using. But yeah, I think, um, I don't necessarily think you need to be an expert, but I think you do need to take the time to understand the sport. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Going back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, sports psychology wasn't really a thing. Uh, I've, I was doing an interview with someone recently, a friend of mine, a uh, former professional footballer, uh, and he said it was only in the last year, he ended up retiring early, mainly through injury, uh, but it was only in the last couple of years of his career that he started using a sports psychologist, uh, and it made a huge difference, but that there was such a stigma around asking a sports psychologist for help that he, he had to get far enough along in his career that he wasn't worried about being made fun of for using a sports psychologist before he started using one, and he wished he had started earlier. Does that stigma still exist, do you think? Um, yes, I still think the stigma exists, but I think it is reducing. And there are a variety of reasons for that. I think more and more athletes now, as you were saying, are talking about using sports psychologists. And in a lot of cases, quite some high-profile athletes are talking about that, which I think from a professional point of view, does make a big difference. If, if for example, other people are seeing that X person or X person is starting to um, use sports psychology, I think that as a result, other athletes are recognizing, actually, if this person is using it, then surely if I use it, then I, you know, uh, it's, not, you know, it's not, a major, not, not a major issue. And if, if that person can see value in it, surely there must be something in sports psychology. So I think certainly that's making a, a big difference. I also think that in terms of uh, sports and the professionalization of, of certain sports. I think there, 
I think athletes are starting to recognize that sports psychology is not just about working on weaknesses. And it's not just about, you know, the, the perception of a sports psychologist, you know, we're going to sit down on a couch and you're going to tell me your life history and I'm going to unpick your childhood. That perception is now starting to be changed significantly. And I think certain sports are leading the way in relation to that. Football certainly is getting a lot better. Golf, as you mentioned, I know a lot of sports psychologists being used in golf, tennis, cricket. So I think there are certain sports where sports psychology is now just part and parcel of any kind of support package. I guess I guess I would always argue, and when I say argue, but I would always, you know, talk when I talk to coaches about it is. A lot of coaches will say, you know, you'll ask them the question, you know, what percentage, and I don't always like putting a percentage to it, but what percentage would you say that your sport is, is mental or psychological? And they'll say, I don't know, somewhere between 50 and 80%. And I would always then say that, okay, if you're saying that, you know, golf is or your sport is, is 80% psychological, how much do you spend 80% of your time on psychological aspects? And then they'll always kind of have a bit of a wry smile to themselves and, think well no we probably we probably don't and yeah i i, I think that you know if we if we are if athletes and coaches are saying that you know the sport is whatever the percentage is it doesn't necessarily you don't necessarily need to put a, a figure to it but if it's greater than 50 percent then surely athletes and coaches need to to work in that same column level as they would do the physically technically and tactically and I think the other, the other beauty from my side of things from a psychological point of view is I don't often like to treat sports psychology as a separate discipline. I think the best way that sports psychology can have an impact if, it, if it's integrated within other disciplines, if it's integrated within the physical development, if it's integrated within technical development, rather than treating it as a, you know, physically technically psychologically etc etc so yeah i think the stigma is is still there for sure i still think i think that the more impact that we can have within within sports um and a lot of now you know there are a lot of psychologists now working full-time within certain roles personally i like to see more of that i think there are you know if you look at any kind of professional team they'll have a, a physio you know two or three physiotherapists they'll have a strength and conditioning coach very few professional teams now will have a full-time sports psychologist. They might have one who comes on board on a consultancy basis. But personally, I think if we want to see it valued, we, we need to see it being done or, or taken seriously in terms of that full-time professional kind of level. And then probably lastly, the other thing to mention is that the role of the sports psychologist has changed somewhat. So initially, the sports psychologist was just about you know, the perception of a sports psychologist was it's someone who does goal setting, visualization, imagery, self-talk. But we're actually, we're starting to realize that, uh, and certainly sports and athletes and coaches are starting to realize that sports psychology is far beyond that. You know, a lot of the work that I do, for example, is, is environmentally um, working with coaches to help them um, create environments and cultures that will help the the team and the organization more more broadly so i think when we see the role of the sports psychologist changing as well i think the perception of sports psychology is starting to change as well in that sense so yeah. it's a little bit of a long long-winded answer to kind of say yes it is there is a stigma but i, I think it is is changing in, in the positive direction for sure yeah, yeah. well there's so 
so much in what you just said that we'll we'll try to unpack a little bit now because I know uh, again uh, someone I interviewed recently, a friend of mine, um, who was saying something similar in that he he thinks. Let's take a step back for a minute. Mental health issues, mental illness with current athletes and retired athletes, especially now, is it's going crazy. It's it's booming. Um, every year the numbers of footballers in particular that are calling in for uh, support from the PFA uh, for mental health issues is it's multiplying every year um, and so to looking at the psychologist the sports psychologist or whatever it is uh, from not just uh, okay you've done your training now let's go into a room and talk about relaxation to something much bigger and 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 the ex-footballer I was I was talking about said that he thinks that every team should have a sports psychologist or a well-being person on full-time staff and I like about what I like about a lot of what you're talking about is that yes you're talking about sports psychology but actually you're talking about well the well-being of the person and if you can get that well-being that holistic view of the person right they'll become a better performer uh, they, they just will get better on the field. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Um, you and David Fletcher, uh, who's at Loughborough Uni, uh, wrote a fantastic paper called Mental Fortitude Training, an Evidence-Based Approach to Developing Psychological Resilience for Sustained Success. Uh, I really enjoyed reading that, still processing it. Uh, but already it's feeding into my own practice. I, I, I've just, I've, I've really enjoyed getting into that. So as we say, in the past, sports psychology has dealt with the, the act of whatever it is you're doing, becoming a better putter, becoming a better goal scorer, becoming a better bowler in cricket, whatever it is, that, that particular thing. Um, but we are, it is changing slowly. Are we large scale getting better at taking a more holistic view of the player or is it still quite small um and and what do we need what can we do better and and then i want you to get into resilience because this is the bit of it that really excites me yeah sure so i guess in terms of in terms of mental health i guess yes i think definitely i think we are getting better at um holistically looking at a uh, at a person rather than and i always make the point that you know it's it's person before performer um which i think is really really important um and often again there's a there's a big debate about is the role of a sports psychologist about performance or well-being and but for me it's a little bit of a moot debate in the sense that as you rightly said if you take care of, and again this is the bit where maybe we 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 need to convince or we need a bit more buy-in maybe from, from coaches and, and athletes that if we focus on them as people when we're more likely to then get them to perform better now that's the thing is that's a very difficult sell for a coach uh, who is interested in just in performance I guess what we can kind of do as a profession in relation to that is is just I think develop our counseling and listening skills I think that's a really really important part of that process is is certainly in the initial initial interaction with our with our athletes is rather than delving straight into maybe certain 
issues that they may be facing from a performance level, just taking a step back and just yeah. understanding them in terms of their family background, you know, et cetera, just finding out a little bit more about what makes them tick, you know, a little bit more about them as, as a person. And that I think will certainly help you to then be able to have a better relationship with that particular uh, individual and maybe potentially then get to kind of the crux of certain issues that they kind of might be um, experiencing. And certainly from a resilience point of view, I, I, I guess in terms of a, a definition, um, linking it into kind of mental health and well-being. Actually, I guess before I, I mentioned that, I guess the other thing to, for sports psychologists to be mindful of is I would feel very comfortable having a conversation with an athlete about them holistically. But if they were to talk about um, certain, particularly mental ill health, um, so mental health problems that they might be experiencing, I just think it's really important for sports psychologists to understand their boundaries. Because unless you've come from a, a mental health background, I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable potentially working with an athlete who may be, for example, experiencing kind of clinical depression, for example. Um, and that, I think that's why it's really important that as a sports psychologist, you've got a very good referral network where you might be able to refer them to a, a clinical psychologist or a, a psychiatrist who might be able to work with them, certainly. And I would still work with that athlete from a performance point of view, but actually from a mental health and mental ill health point of view, I probably wouldn't have that the competency or the skill set really to to be able to do that. So I think that's a really important point to, to mention in terms of that. Yeah, sorry, just then coming back to resilience, I think whenever I talk about resilience, I always talk about it as the ability to maintain functioning when you're under pressure. So everyone can maintain functioning when things are going well, but when you're under pressure, how are you able to maintain that functioning? Again, as coaches, people often, when we think about functioning, we think about performance. How are you able to maintain your performance when you're under pressure? But I'm always a believer that when we're talking about functioning, we should not just be talking about performance, but we should also be talking about well-being as well. For me, the definition of resilience, I guess, is, is the ability to maintain functioning when you're under pressure. And that functioning should be holistic. It should not just, it should be about performance, but it also should be about well-being as well. And I guess linked to that really from a resilience point of view is resilience is not the absence or suppression of emotion. Uh, we often think that if you de demonstrate resilience, you show no emotion and you just get on with things. But again, that's completely far from the truth. Those who demonstrate resilience often face some quite negative emotions. You know, they feel guilty, shame, anger, frustration, but they're able to manage those emotions better. It's not that they don't experience them. They experience them, but they're able to manage them some better. So I think certainly there is a, a good link there between resilience and well-being. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, many of us uh, will have at some point defined resilience as bounce back ability, but that's not, tell me where in your definition that fits because it is, I, I think it is a part of resilience, but it's not the definition of resilience. So tell me how that fits in. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm really, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the academic in me, but I'm really picky when it comes to language and I'm, I'm really, and that's where, for example, the media portrayal and with resilience becoming a bit of a buzzword, the meaning of the word is starting to be lost in translation slightly. And that's why 
as, as you rightly said, there is an element of resilience where, which is about bouncing back. But if we, if we think about resilience as just bouncing back, I think that's a very narrow conceptualization of resilience. And a phrase, that, a phrase that I often use from the Harvard Business Review talks about resilience is not just about responding to a setback, but it's about the capacity to change before the case for change becomes obvious. And the reason I like that is, for me, there is two aspects to resilience. There is the reactive aspect, where you are reacting to something going wrong, um, and potentially there's this element of, of bouncing back, where you have a, maybe a bit of a dip in functioning before you recover to kind of normal levels or baseline levels of functioning. And we, in our, in our mental fortitude training article, we, we use the term uh, rebound resilience for that notion of kind of that bounce back uh, ability. But there, for me, that's a, that's a very narrow um, way of thinking, which is very reactive. Something goes wrong and then you bounce back from that encounter. I guess that's also bringing it back just to performance again, isn't it, as well? Yes. So if it's bounce back ability, then it's all about the performance, the yeah. thing that you're doing. Yeah, and I think for me, the more beneficial way of thinking about resilience and resilience development is a proactive approach to managing stress. And that, that's why I often make a, uh, I make a distinction between developing resilience and stress management. Stress management is managing stress that has already occurred, whereas actually developing resilience is thinking about putting things in place before things start to potentially go wrong. And actually, it's a more beneficial way in terms of it's a more proactive way of looking at how you might be able to withstand pressure and again in this article we talk about rebound resilience which is this bounce back element but also robust resilience which is that ability to not dip in functioning but the ability to maintain functioning when you're under pressure and that ability to be proactive in maintaining that functioning. So I think for me, there's, there's, there's a two-part thing. There's, there's rebound resilience, which is this bounce-back element, but also robust resilience where you're able to maintain your functioning um, in this kind of proactive fashion. And that, that's why for me, resilience is both reactive, for me more beneficially thinking about it in a more proactive fashion as well. Sure. sure. We'll come back to that in just a minute as well. But uh, you talk a lot about resilience being context specific. So again, for a long time now, you would hear people say, oh, he's very resilient or she's very resilient. Uh, and you're saying, stop, don't do that. Why? Yeah, I, again, the language is really important here. I'm, I'm, I guess if you label, and again, for me, labeling is really, really dangerous. If you label someone as a resilient individual, you're implying to some extent that they've either got it or they haven't got it. Um, and that goes, for me, one of the myths associated with resilience is that it's a fixed trait. Yes, there are certain personal qualities that are important, but by talking about it as a resilient person, there's two, there's, as you said, firstly, you're, you're implying that there's a fixed trait, but the danger associated with that is, is that it, there's nothing that can be done to develop resilience which is again, completely far from the truth because we know that with practice, with intervention, with uh, initiatives that, and with training, that resilience is a capacity that can be developed. So I think that's really important. In terms of it being context specific, what we kind of suggest is that there's two kind of key components to that. 
Resilience is a capacity that can change from situation to situation. So if we use it, uh, you know, a practical example in sport, how someone reacts and responds to being injured might be very, very different to how they react and respond to, let's say, for example, a loss of form. So we need to understand resilience in the specific context or situations or the pressures that individuals are facing, rather than saying that someone is resilient across all types of situations. Uh, because we know that that is a very, and again, on, on a broader level, someone who reacts to pressure in their workplace environment might be very different to how they react to pressure in their personal lives. So we need to understand resilience in relation to sport versus non-sport, uh, work versus non-work, uh, but even within the workplace context or the sport context. What specific areas are you talking about here in terms of resilience? Not just putting a label or a broad thing about resilience in, in focus. The second element is resilience is time sensitive. So our resilience levels can change over time. It can either increase and decrease over time. And I guess a, a, an overall point when it comes to context is we need to understand resilience, not just in terms of the individual, but also in terms of the environment. And that's something that I'm very passionate about is, is to understand some of the environmental considerations when we're talking about resilience. I have a question. We were going to come to it a little bit later. Um, the challenge mindset you talk about is really important. I want to bring that into with the labeling. So labeling someone as resilient. The challenge mindset and growth mindset, are those the same thing? Challenge mindset and growth mindset or are they not? So if, if you've labeled someone as resilient, but then they face a situation where they're not resilient, the growth mindset, if they don't have, the, they have a fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset, then they're gonna realize they're not resilient in that situation and then say, oh, well, I'm not a resilient person then. Um, these people are lying to me. <laughs> and that could therefore affect their performance. A person with a, a growth, mindset has the potential of saying, okay, I haven't been successful in this area, but that doesn't mean I'm a complete failure. Is that the same thing as the challenge mindset or is challenge mindset sort of sports specific? Do you understand the, what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I guess going back to your, your uh, first area, there is definitely a link between resilience and growth mindset. Um, and I'm going to Growth mindset and challenge mindset are two, are two different things, which I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. But your first bit about labeling is, is really important. That Yes, I think if you were to label someone or, you know, let's say, for example, you were working with young people and, you know, you were to label them as a, you know, and, and even mention it to them as a, you know, you're a very resilient person. I think the danger of that is that if they go into other situations where maybe their resilience, that label of them being resilient isn't kind of fulfilled, they may then feel as if there is a bit of a tension there and feel as if, okay, I've been, talk I've been talked about as a resilient person, but I've not been able to, to kind of you know, manage this particular pressure. So I talk about resilience on a continuum. So rather than talking about someone as a resilient individual, you can kind of say to someone that, yes, you've demonstrated resilience at this time in this specific context. And I think that's absolutely fine. But actually saying that someone is resilient across everything, that's just not, that's not realistic. Not, you know, you can't, you can't do that. I think 
yes, if you had a growth mindset where you can, and obviously this is based on the work of Angela Duckworth, sorry, based on the work Carol. of Carol Dweck, sorry. Carol Dweck. Angela Duckworth is, is another, um, on, on the notion of grit. Um, but yeah, based on the work of Carol Dweck, yes, if you had a growth mindset, I think it would certainly help, but there is an association between growth mindset and resilience. In terms of, in terms of challenge mindset, that's a slightly different area. Challenge mindset is um, a mindset where pressure and stress is seen as an opportunity to develop and to grow rather than pressure and stress seen as something that is threatening to your performance and well-being. So what challenge mindset refers to is how do people evaluate and view pressure? Because if we talk about resilience as the ability to, to, um, the ability to withstand pressure, and we talk about um, resilience as the ability to maintain functioning when you're under pressure, um, it's really important to understand how do people see or evaluate or view pressure? Do they view it as an, as an opportunity to develop and to grow? Do they view it as a challenge? Or do they view it as a threat where it's seen as something that is detrimental to their performance and well-being? And... A lot of the work that we do around the challenge mindset, um, and actually this is based on a lot of the work that the U.S. Army have done. Uh, the U.S. Army have spent over 100 million uh, U.S. dollars on building soldiers' resilience, and a lot of it is through the lens of challenge mindset or challenge appraisal, with one of the key areas being about uh, learning your ABCs, which is A, being adversity, B, being your beliefs, and C, being your consequences. And a big part of the challenge mindset is recognizing that it's not necessarily the adversity or the negative event that is making us have negative feelings and behaviors, which is the consequences, but it's our beliefs and thoughts about the event that is more important than the event itself. Um, and this is very much based on kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT, uh, and it's helping people to reframe uh, negative events and situations. But I always make a point that resilience and the challenge mindset in particular is not about positive thinking. I think positive thinking is something that is often oversold. It's not about positive thinking, but it's about helping people to recognize that there is an alternative way to view a situation. Yeah. Uh, and that for me is what the challenge mindset is about is helping people to reframe pressure and stress which is which is certainly linked to the growth mindset those with a growth mindset are more likely to have an alternative perspective rather than just being black and white but but they're not they're not necessarily one in the same they are slightly different yeah. from one and you i guess one of the ways you kind of address this is talking about bandwidth so the personal qualities. Uh, so let's just talk about that for a minute. So you, there are kind of three main categories for producing resilience that you talk about. And they are the right environment, personal qualities, and the challenge mindset. We've talked a bit about the challenge mindset, the, the personal qualities, one of which might be a growth mindset. So we talk a little bit about that and, and the environment. What do you mean by those, those things? Yeah, so in terms of uh, mental fortitude training, as you said, we've kind of uh, uh, suggested that to develop resilience comprehensively, you, meant you need to focus on the personal qualities, the facilitative environment, and the challenge mindset. I guess before we're going into each of those areas, it's really important to recognize, I think a lot of programs 
um, and a lot of a lot of a lot of researchers talking about resilience, they often focus on one of key, one of one one or two of those areas. But actually, if we want to develop resilience comprehensively, we need to think about each of these three areas in combination, rather than let's say for for example, just focusing on personal qualities. If we do that, but we don't focus on the environment, we're only going to probably result in some very, very short-term changes. Similarly, if we just focus on the challenge mindset, uh, which is, again, very much focused on the individual, if we don't take into account environmental considerations, then we're not going to have the kind of the long-term impact that we, we would desire. So I think it's really important to think about these three things um, collectively. But yeah, I've talked about the kind of and oh, the other the other part is that in terms of how the framework looks. Um, and again, I'm more than happy to share the diagram or the visual representation with people outside of this uh, podcast. But we have personal qualities and the environment on the bottom. If you talk about it, let's say as a pyramid, we've got the personal qualities in the environment on the bottom, and that goes back to the fact that uh, and, and each of them linked with one another. Um, so that's where we kind of argue that the personal qualities shape the environment and the environment shapes the personal qualities, and it's a kind of a double arrow between the two. And when we then say that if you develop the personal qualities and the environment, you lead to this challenge mindset, where you're more likely to develop this mindset in individuals where pressure and stress is seen as this opportunity and, and growth and development. So we've talked about the challenge mindset briefly. In terms of the, the, the personal qualities, what we're referring to here are the psychological characteristics or factors that would protect individuals from the potential negative effects of stress. So these could be things like personality uh, related uh, areas. So things like uh, optimism, uh, competitiveness, being proactive, proactive being a, you know, activity is actually considered to be a, a personality kind of disposition. And these are all personality characteristics and you, know, you mentioned about bandwidth, the, the personality characteristics are, I guess, the characteristics that we have as individuals that may increase our, our bandwidth in terms of characteristics that we, we already have that are more likely to, to, to give us a, a bit of a, a starting point in terms of our levels of resilience. But just because you've got certain personality characteristics doesn't necessarily mean you're going to demonstrate resilience. Even if you are, let's say, lower on some of these desirable personality characteristics like optimism and uh, competitiveness and proactivity, there are other things like psychological skills and characteristics that we know are really important. Uh, things like uh, confidence, motivation, uh, the ability to maintain focus, the uh, recognition or the, the ability to perceive social support. Uh, so these are all other kind of personal qualities that we know are really important in terms of focusing on the individual in terms of to uh, withstand pressure. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions, again, that I, I ask the athletes is, uh, who was your favorite manager in terms of man management? Uh, because I think that's where you find out, because a, a lot of this, if you're dealing with athletes and you want to know what their personal qualities are, what is their bandwidth. You, you have to know them as a person because coaching isn't a one size fits all uh, event, is it? It's it. No. Um, and so, and they all know just straight away who was the one coach who they felt got the best out of them, who was willing to listen to them, who understood them if they needed a day off, if they, whatever it was. And 
it, it doesn't make coaching easier. Uh, makes it harder, actually. But if you want to get the best out of someone, it's, it's understanding those personal qualities, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, and I think for me, that's why it links in not really nicely to the environment because a lot of the work that I do, and in terms of developing resilience, yes, I, I do a lot of work in terms of personal qualities and the challenge mindset. But a lot of my work is actually working with coaches to understand the environment they are creating for athletes because. If you're able to understand the environment and, and, and as a coach, you're able to create what we call this facilitative environment, then I think, as you said, you're more likely to then develop those personal qualities, understand what the qualities, firstly, the individual has, but then understand also what qualities do, do, does that athlete need. And actually, you can develop those personal qualities, not directly with the athlete, but by shaping the environment. And that's why, for me, the environment piece is, is really important because as coaches you have you know you're working with athletes on a day-to-day -day basis and you're having that input you know week in week out whereas if you just focus on the individual in terms of what they're doing you might kind of create short-term change but actually you're not you know that will probably disappear over a period of time whereas focusing on the environment is a lot harder but and it will take a lot more time but it will not lead to long-lasting change um, so for me, um, I think we're, we're probably going to go on to this, but I'll, I'll briefly mention about the environment. We, we talk about two key areas of the environment, um, the notions of challenge and the notions of support. And that results in four different types of environment. So if you've got high, I'll, I'll briefly talk about that, uh, Buddy, and then maybe then Please we do, can yeah. go into other areas. But if you've got high challenge, low support, we call this the unrelenting environment, which you, you do see in a lot of um, professional teams and organizations. Uh, and we, we can kind of maybe unpick that maybe a little bit later, but a high challenge and low support is this unrelenting environment, uh, where actually really interestingly, there's a lot of, in an unrelenting environment, there's a lot of focus on performance, but there's very, very little focus on holistic uh, well-being and mental health. And that, that can have some negative consequences in terms of burnout and potentially people dropping out of the sport. You've then got the opposite maybe where you've got high support but low challenge, what we call the comfortable environment. Now again, there's, there's nothing really wrong with the comfortable environment. Actually in a comfortable environment, uh, well-being is very, very high on the agenda. But in a comfortable environment, you're probably unlikely to get high levels of performance. And again, in a comfortable environment, maybe that's where, for example, difficult conversations are avoided. Uh, there's a little bit of complacency, etc. On the bottom left, you've got low support and low challenge. And I would hope that there are not that many environments which are in this stagnant environment where there's pretty much not a lot going on in that environment. People are just turning up for the sake of turning up. There's not much motivation, not much care uh, in that environment. And then probably the environment that we argue is the most desirable is the top right which is the high challenge and high support environment. And that's where, for example, athletes who are very proactive, so they're constantly coming to you for feedback rather than you as a coach always providing that feedback. You've got coaches, uh, sorry, athletes who are constantly looking to set themselves some really ambitious goals. You've got good relationships between coaches and, and athletes. You've got an environment where it's safe to, to take risks and make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think, um, yeah, those environmental considerations and an exercise that I often do actually with coaches is to help them understand 
what do these environment, each of these four environments actually look like on a day-to-day -day basis? And what are some of the red flags that you might see in some of these environments? So when you come across these red flags, you're in a better position to do something about them. But yeah, those are the kind of the three kind of the areas, the personal qualities, the facilitative environment, and then the challenge mindset. I was recently with someone that I know who plays for a professional football team, which will go unnamed. Uh, and he's been there a little while now. And he was describing to me the, a very sort of low challenge, low support, very comfortable sort of environment there. And it's actually a club with high ambitions. Uh, but he said he had been there a while and he said there hadn't been one argument. And this was really it really bothered him that he, he's, he's playing there and there's not been a single fight in the changing room, not been anyone yelling at anyone else. And that that's a terrible thing. Yeah. Co conflict, I think is a really interesting one. As you said, if there is absolutely no disagreements and conflict at all whatsoever, as, as you said, that, that for me is a red flag for being in a comfortable environment, the high support, low challenge. What you don't want to get to is, Conflict, and conflict can be quite a good thing, but what you don't want it to be is to move into the unrelenting environment where conflict is managed particularly poorly. And that can also lead to some negative consequences where people then feel afraid to speak out because they feel as if there's going to be some sort of judgment passed if they say something. So you don't want to create that environment where it leads to that kind of feeling. You want to create an environment where people feel safe to, to speak up, to share their concerns, but for it to be to be managed well, where people have a voice, but it's not to the extent that people are belittling other people. Um, so it is a very, very co conflict for me is a very uh, interesting concept. If, if there's none, it can be very comfortable. If there is too much to not manage well, it can be unrelenting, but you want to find that balance in the middle where there is some disagreement, but it's done and managed in a, in, a, in, a, in a particularly good way. And again, that's where those kind of personal, personal skills as coaches and managers are really important, where you are giving a sense that you want people to speak up and share their opinion. You want people to maybe even, you know, when there's been poor performances or when, when people have stepped out of line, you want people to feel free to say, you know, that just wasn't quite right. You know, we shouldn't be doing that. Um, but I think the way that's managed in terms of debriefing and things like that, I think that's really important um, in terms of that process. Can you, can you give any examples of where you see maybe where you see that happening uh, on a, you know, any professional teams where you can point to them and say, this is a great example of one of these environments? Yeah, I guess, I guess um, I haven't got a, kind of a specific example of, kind of, a, of a specific team, but one area that my, I, I've started to see being used quite well, in fact, I saw, I saw a, a tweet about this actually recently, and it's, it's been used a lot, but there's, there's a nice tweet, I think, with um, Brendan Rodgers and um, Leicester Football Club. And again, this, this not, it's not specific to this football club, a lot of teams kind of use this approach, um, is, the, is the use of leadership groups. And I think the, the, the great thing with leadership groups, again, it's not, it's not as simple as just having a leadership group. It need, the leadership group needs to be used and executed well. But the one, one interesting thing about a leadership group is that it can help to spread ownership and accountability rather than all of the responsibility being on the, I don't know, the captain or the coach. You've actually got maybe three or four individuals or even maybe potentially more than that where 
they are listening to the views of other people, but then as a leadership group, they are spreading that ownership and accountability and, and, and making sure that everyone is you know, accountable for either you know, performances and, and everyone has a, has a voice really to kind of share some of the things that, you know, some of the concerns or, or tactics or whatever it might be. But I think, yeah, it's not as simple as just to say, you know, we'll, we'll have a leadership group. Coaches and senior people need to use that leadership group well because it can also have the opposite effect. You know, one example of, of it, of it we're not working particularly well is, you know, you might, people might be aware of the Australian cricket team where they were talking about kind of, or when they were obviously uh, accused of ball tampering. And that actually stemmed from a leadership group. And so the danger of a leadership group is that there's, there's potentially a lot of power within one or two individuals. And then if people then get, potentially people can be made a bit of a scapegoat where if it's part of a leadership group, then and decisions are made in that sense, it can lead to some kind of undesirable behaviors being, being taken. So leadership groups need to be used properly and executed well uh, but that, that to me is a, a good example of maybe some sort of um, initiative or some sort of philosophy that can work to help manage some of that conflict and also to help um, manage um, or to increase ownership and responsibility throughout our whole team. Is there any uh, research being done on how some of the this 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 idea of resilience uh, the the various types of environments, how to operate in those environments. Anything being done in academies uh, that you know of at the minute? Because uh, if we're, if we're going to change things, that's a good place to change them. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really good question. And, and the simple answer is no. There is one piece of research that I'm aware of uh, by, I think, some Australian researchers, by White and, and colleagues in 2015, where they looked at gymnastic coaches and athletes um, in a youth sport context. Uh, but most of the research to date has focused on elite athletes. And it's really interesting. I get that question asked a lot, uh, particularly actually from football coaches, but also from psychologists who are saying that, you know, this is, this is really, really nice, you know, research and information. But actually, if we're working with, I don't know, 10, 11, 12-year-olds or 14, 15-year-olds, how does this kind of translate? And unfortunately, from a research point of view, we're not quite there yet, I don't think, in terms of being able to extrapolate and kind of explain uh, and look at some of these findings from a developmental point of view. And I think that's, for me, where future research really needs to go into, not just looking at it at one age group, but also actually looking at it longitudinally. So how does resilience development change from you know, an academy player, maybe at the age of 11, 12, to how they then become go with maybe to you know, 16, 17, 18? And what are some of the, I guess, you know, we often talk about periodization from a, a training point of view, actually from a psychological point of view, how does that periodization particularly work? And, and also from a resilience point of view. The one thing I would say, and again, we've got some limited evidence for this, but we need a little bit more, is challenge and support. Environmentally, I would kind of argue that we probably need more of that at the lower age groups. And the, 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 the visual diagram I often talk about is, you know, some of you, some people might have seen this where, you know, you talk about the journey, you know, an athlete's journey, and often you'll come up with that with a straight line. You know, it's from this place to this place, and it's a straight line. 
And often youth players who have had that straight journey, when they come to the top of their journey and they start to experience a little bit of setbacks, if they've not had a few road bumps along the road, they will really struggle at that top of that journey. Let's say, for example, they're transitioning from 18 to the first team. That's often when players don't make it. And that's one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons maybe is that their journey has been a little bit too linear. What we do, what we know from a lot of the research in terms of high achievers and, and high achievers in sports and other areas is they, they've had uh, some speed bumps along the way. They've had ups and downs. And it's, it's been in the upward trajectory, but it's been up and down. And for me, youth development and coaches need to think about and this needs to be done appropriately. It needs to be done, needs to be, de- be, be done developmentally, appro- uh, you know, developmentally properly. But there needs to be this, you know, how is challenge and support done at these lower age groups? I'm, 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 I'm still of a believer that you can challenge young, young people. You can challenge them at the age of 12 and 13. Obviously, it needs to be done developmentally and progressively adaptable. But that, that's for me something uh, from a resilience point of view needs to be thought about is how can we stretch young people but, but at the same time have that support uh, where they can develop some of those kind of skills along the way. Yeah, I completely agree. And I wonder if, you know, within the FA coaching badges for football, for instance, you know, could more be done, you know, if, if a lot of the, the youth coaches, not even in the academies, just your average grassroots football club, if they were getting more of this type of training while getting their badges, that, that would be a great place to start, I think. Yes, definitely. I think you're right. Educationally, uh, we often kind of focus on kind of coaches at our kind of at the, the more senior end, but uh, you're, you're definitely right. As I think uh, if coach education can include some of this information within kind of uh, grassroots, and, and, and the reason it, it's really, it's a really dangerous area because what we are, we aren't saying is just, you know, pepper young people with challenges. Uh, because what, what that will then, what that uh, has a danger of is it is creating that unrelenting environment where you might get young people who, if they're constantly bombarded with challenges, um, they might drop out. And again, it might, it's not going to be a very pleasant, you know, you know, player experience. And actually, it's not, we also argue, it's not really about the challenge itself. Obviously, the challenges are really important and providing these speed bumps are really important. But is actually what coaches and athletes do with those challenges in terms of their learning and reflection from those challenges. But yeah, so it's not as simple as just kind of providing challenges. It's, it's also about understanding what you do before the challenge in terms of providing a justification. It's also important to understand what you do after the challenge in terms of the debrief. And, and as you said, understanding how the athletes are responding to the challenge. Do you have to, there are some athletes where you provide some challenge and actually, they manage it really well. You observe them, you debrief with them, and actually, you, next time around, you might want to increase that challenge even further. But there are other athletes where only if you speak to them and you observe them, you actually realize actually they need a little bit more support. And that's where, for example, you might increase some of those personal qualities. You try to increase learning, you try to increase practice. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely worth including in, in coach education, but it's not as simple as, as just saying, you know, provide those bumps because it's a little bit more kind of, I guess, complex than that. 
Sure. Have you watched The Last Dance? <clears throat> yes. Yes. I, it's fascinating. There's so many things that, that you could pull out of that uh, as a sports psychologist <laughs> um, watching from the outside. But, you know, it struck me that Michael Jordan is presenting his team with an unrelenting environment um, as the leader, uh, whereas Phil Jackson is bringing the support element. So, uh, and they, they created a balance there, it seems most of the time <laughs> where the, the, you know, it was a, the player, the main player creating that unrelenting environment, but the coach was able to come in and, and bring some balance. Yeah. It's, it's, for me, that's a really interesting one because I've had one or two people comment me about that in terms of Michael Jordan. And, and, and for me, I don't, Michael, yeah, certain aspects of uh, Michael Jordan um, in terms of that relentless pursuit uh, which again, some I know obviously on the last time, some would have kind of argued that there were aspects of, of bullying and, and things like that. Now, yes, that is an unrelenting environment. Now, I don't necessarily, I, I, would, I would kind of probably say that Michael Jordan was that maverick who was pushing those kind of boundaries. And as you said, Phil Jackson was for me creating this facilitative environment. He was, he was able to. Um, get the best out of his players and understand, you know, uh, is it Dennis Rodman? Is that his first name? Yeah. That's right. Another brilliant example of a player that, you know, needed a very different type of, you know, needed that freedom to, to express himself. Uh, but I would say overall, even though people might feel as if actually the Bulls had elements of an unrelenting environment, um, I would say overall, again, this is only on my, on my perception of that documentary, Overall, I would say there were probably more features of a facilitative environment than there were of the unrelenting environment. And I always make a point that you might get one or two aspects of the unrelenting environment um, in the short term, and that's just about okay. I, I'm not, I don't think there's really any case for, for, for coaches to create an unrelenting environment. But if you are creating those features of an unrelenting environment, and all of the features, of an unrelenting environment over a period of time, you're, you're gonna have, you know, I think even Michael Jordan even said himself, winning, winning has its costs, you know, you know and, and that's where actually the unrelenting environment has, has come about is for your listeners, I think there's one particular report that I think is really interesting is the duty of care report that the UK government put together on the back of certain Olympic and professional sports having that winning at all cost culture. Uh, I think British cycling were talked about this. Uh, other, other professional sports were talked about this where it was all about winning and it was all about medals in the context of Olympic sports. And as a result, that had an impact on the people within, within the organization. Steve Kerr, for example, within the Bulls, talked a little bit about his own kind of personal development in terms of that. So I think for me, the last dance in terms of um, in terms of environmentally yes there were one or two elements of the unrelenting environment although i think overall there were some more better features of the of the facilitative environment but we've got to we've got to be careful with that unrelenting environment i, I heard john amici uh talk about this that his opinion is that there is no real need for people to be, you know, Michael Jordan did that, you know, he, you know, he was obviously extremely, extremely successful as a player and as a team, but I'm still of the opinion that you don't need to be in that mold 
to create a good environment. You can still you can still be very challenged. I think coaches and players often will say, well, I'm either going to be challenging or I'm going to be supportive. But I, I, I'm a big believer that actually you can do both. You can be very, very challenging and have high standards, but still do that in a supportive way. And aspects of that, Michael Jordan definitely did. I, I still think he probably pushed that boundary. And there is a very, very fine line between this unrelenting environment and that facilitative environment. Uh, but I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with John, John Amici there, who said that, yeah, I don't think you need to have those behaviours where you are, to some extent, instilling fear in individuals. Particularly, and I think he made the point, actually, is that if you want to create the persona for your opposition, that's a slightly different thing. But if you're doing it within your own team setup where people are afraid of you, I don't think that's a, that's a healthy... I don't think that's a healthy mindset to kind of have. But as you said, we have lots of really interesting you know, messages within that, within that program. I think uh, there were people who left the Bulls. That the, the documentary didn't really go into it, who left the Bulls because of the pressure that Michael Jordan would, uh, would bring. Um, but, you know, were, did they have the right challenge mindset? <laughs> Third question. Uh, and one of my favorite films ever, uh, I think is really good on this as well, uh, an American football film called Remember the Titans. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've seen, seen that myself, or not. No. Okay. Uh, highly recommend it. Highly recommend it, uh, but it was uh, there are a couple of really good examples of the the, the high challenge, uh, but with always the support. And you didn't always see the support straight away, uh, and that's one of the keys, isn't it? Sometimes people need to sit in the challenge for a little while. Yeah, and I think as well that um, you make a really interesting point about support. Is is you're probably right. You probably need to sit in the challenge for a little bit of a while. And, but also support comes in, in very different shapes and sizes. And support from an environment point of view is not necessarily just that emotional support in terms of the arm around the shoulder. But, you know, the example that, that I gave about providing these speed bumps, support could be as simple as debriefing with your athletes at the end of, a, let's say, a difficult training session where you have tested them but you are just finding out from them, how do they react? How do they respond? Getting some honest feedback from your, from your athletes to see, do you need to increase that challenge even further? Or do you need to provide more learning and practice in terms of increasing that support? Now, debriefing as a, as a, as a mechanism is support. You're, you're, you know, you're providing that support. Another aspect of support could be, for example, making sure things are done developmentally, progressively, you know, done in a, in a proper, uh, a proper way. So yeah, support is not necessarily just that kind of visible support in terms of the emotional aspect of it, but it's about, as you said, listening to players, understanding their perspective, adapting, modifying based on their needs. That is in, in itself kind of support. And, and often that support is, is not necessarily seen but it's actually felt by the athlete. And that's, that's really, really important. Great. Now I'm aware that um, time is running on, but there are just one or two more things. Uh, we, uh, we're going to talk about some of the work you've been doing, uh, researching around Olympic athletes, uh, qualities that underpin their resilience. Can you just tell people where they can go for that instead of us um, digging into that right now? Yeah, I guess um, People can feel free to kind of get in touch via my uh, Nottingham Trent University um, webpage. Um, 
and on there they've got my kind of my research and and my my kind of my publications uh in terms of actually getting access to the research if people can feel free to kind of uh, drop me an email or reach out via twitter uh, i'm at m-u-s-s-a-r-k-a-r which is mussarka uh, but also in terms of the research um, i have a profile on, on research gate where we, it's kind of an academic platform where, where academics put or deposit some of that research. So yeah, either uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, ResearchGate, or my uh, academic profile. Great, but the five qualities that underpin the resilience of Olympic athletes, please do go read that. Uh, that's, that's some really interesting stuff coming out of there. I wanna uh, kind of finish on, uh, we talked a little bit at the beginning, and I want to come back to it now, the mental health issues being experienced by a lot of current and former athletes. It, it really, it's astounding, the percentages. Uh, my understanding is for football, for instance, approximately 80% of professional footballers are broke, divorced, or depressed within three years of retirement. 75% are divorced within five years of retirement. And this is just this producing some huge mental health issues. Now, that's also for current athletes now because of the external pressures through social media and various other outlets. What can be done to help avoid some of these mental health issues is resilience and what you've been talking about, this holistic view of resilience, not just can you score more goals. Uh, is resilience the key to this? And then the last bit of that, could we start younger, start earlier with young athletes to reframe, and this is something I'm working a lot on at the moment, uh, to reframe identity and success using resilience. Yeah, so um, I'm, always, I'm always mindful kind of, kind of um, pinpointing one, you know, um, you know, mental health and particularly transitions on one particular aspect. And I'm always, even though I'm very, very passionate about resilience, I think it would be probably, um, you know, it wouldn't be accurate for me really to kind of say that, yeah, everything is to do with resilience because it's not. Uh, resilience is certainly an important area within, within, uh, uh, within mental health. And then there needs to be actually a lot more research looking at resilience and mental health and also looking at resilience and transitions. Actually, there's not been really that much research in that area but transitions in itself and particularly the kind of the the post-career transitions there's been lots of really good research um that have you know really good reviews and research kind of in this area and you mentioned about identity in terms of what can be done i think identity is a really really interesting aspect and we know that footballers in particular but also in other sports as well have a very very strong athletic identity which basically means they consider themselves or individuals consider themselves to be i am a footballer you know before i am a person or i am a father or i'm a brother whatever it might be and i guess for me one of the really important things we can do before it gets to that stage is to really help individuals to create different identities uh, rather than thinking okay i'm just a footballer and that's all i do and that's all i am as an individual um what are some of the other things and getting getting individuals to come and think about you know and, and and to educate them around the fact that okay as a footballer you know that your uh, profession is only going to be for up until the age of let's say i don't know the mid 30s if you're lucky 
if you're lucky, if you're lucky. And again, if you have a career ending injury, that could be even sooner than that as well. You know, what are you going to do between, you know, late 20s, early 30s to, you know, when you may be having to work until you're maybe 60 or 65. So you've got another 30, 35 years. And, and I, think, I think football organisations are getting better. Like you mentioned the PFA, for example. I know, I know the FA and other, other organisations are doing some really good things with, with young players in terms of getting them to think about education, getting them to think about work. And, and I guess the skills that they can transfer, for me, this is the other thing, as well as identity, getting them to think about valuing themselves as an individual and the skills that they can develop, the skills they, 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 that they've developed through their sport and how that, they, that, that can be used outside of the sporting context. And getting them to even think about, you know, after they, they, they retire, after they finish football, what are some of the things that they would look to kind of do outside? So when they are having to retire, I guess for me, this is the key bit, is when they are having to retire, it's not a shock to the system. And I think for me, that's when some of the mental health issues start to emerge, is when, when people are not prepared. And as psychologists, for me, one of the things I often do is actually thinking about what if scenarios, is, you know, let, you know, even, I always say is, is it's, Preparing for something doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen, but actually if you're prepared, you're more likely then to be able to then deal with that situation. So what if scenario could be, you know, you have an injury when you are 25, you know, 22 years old and you have to get removed from the sport, how are you going to react and respond? And the sooner that athletes have some of those conversations with coaches, and for me actually coaches are a really important part of this conversation. Coaches need to really give athletes the opportunities to explore some of these things, whether that's in education or in workplace and, and things like that. Because if coaches don't support this, I think that that's potentially where it might kind of fall down. But um, yeah, just kind of uh, increasing the conversations about these topics. And, and for me, mental health, going back to resilience as well, it's about giving people the opportunity to, to express their emotions. I think Re really important that there is not this stigma that, you know, a phrase that's often used with mental health charities is it's okay not to be okay and we, we need to create this um, environment within within sport but also cultures where people can express some of their concerns and that is then not looked on in a negative way I think particularly in terms of things like selection in terms of with coaches if athletes start to express their emotion for example they cry and things like that we need to move away from this notion that these are very, very soft and make, make the person less you know, strong or whatever you, the term that is used. And the more we can get people to, to understand that these emotions are really important and give people the time, firstly, to accept the emotions that they're experiencing. You know, for example, if you're retired, it's really, really natural to feel frustrated, disappointed, have feelings of, you know, shame guilt etc but then give people the time to and, and, the, and the tools and techniques to be able to process those emotions um, and i think that's really important as part of that process yeah great last question uh you uh you are a sports psychologist but you're writing in a way that's accessible for anyone really they don't have to be a qualified sports psych i'm learning loads from from what you're writing at the minute you are an academic and not all academics take this view but you are writing in a way that's accessible. Why is that important to you? Yeah, that's, I, I, I should have actually mentioned that at, at the start when we talked about kind of my, my journey and um, 
one thing I've been very mindful of, particularly actually in the last kind of five, five years or so, is doing research, not just for the sake of doing research, but actually doing research that has an impact and, and value. And as you said, not all academics value that. And if you're an academic and you want to just publish research and you want to have that kind of scientific kind of credibility to I can I can understand that kind of perspective. But what I'm what I think is really important is academics cannot moan that their research is not being read if they don't make the effort themselves to actually write it in a way that coaches and other practitioners can understand. So I think the reason why I do and I find it really valuable is that I guess for me what my purpose of being an academic is, is I, I want to do work that coaches and practitioners can use and can actually, and that's the reason why I got into sports psychology was to help athletes and coaches to become better at what they're already doing. And if research can help with that, I think I'm, I'm passionate about research because I think it's really important for the field to have an evidence base. I think particularly with resilience, for example, there's so much information out there, which isn't, you know, if you type in resilience into Amazon, for example, the number of books that you come up with is so much. And there's a lot of information out there, which isn't particularly good. So I'm very, very big believer in research and evidence base. But I think the evidence base is only important if it can be translated in a way that coaches can kind of use. Having said that, my, my, my other point is, yes, academics, I would say, have a massive responsibility. Now, it starts off with the academic scientific publication, because as academics, that's where we start off with. And once you have that publication, it needs to be translated. What I would also say with coaches is it's important for coaches to engage in that research. So if, for example, you are looking at a particular area, whatever that is, whether it's resilience or not something else, and you come across a piece of work, the one thing I get really frustrated about is a lot of research is, is behind a paywall. Now, but if, if as coaches you come across research that is not accessible, both in terms of financially because there's, there's, a, there's a paywall behind it, but also it's written in a way, let's say you come across a piece of work and you, it's written in a way that is not particularly um, easy to understand, reach out to that academic and reach out to that person to say, look, I've come across this work. Firstly, I can't access it. Can you give me access to it? And most academics should be able to do that. But also, can you help me to understand this in a way that kind of, I can kind of translate? Um, so I think for me, it's a dual, it's a dual responsibility. Academics definitely have a responsibility to make things more accessible. But I think also coaches and practitioners have a responsibility to engage in some of that research. And when, when those two things are, are merged together, I think it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I just want to say to everyone, uh, if anything from this has stuck out to you and you're interested in speaking to Mustafa, he is uh, incredibly easy to contact. Uh, I can I can definitely vouch for that. He has been uh, great in replying to me, and I really appreciate it. Uh, the, the ease of which it has been to contact you has been great. Your responses are always quick, which is um, a, a nice relief. Uh, so, so thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Giving that opportunity for coaches to, to reach out to say, yeah, I came across this piece. Can you send it across? Can we have a follow-up conversation about 
about about that work and how it can be translated and, and i think that's really important definitely that's great. Just as we finish, I want to, I, I've just been reading a book, um, not a huge rugby fan, but uh, definitely respect it as a, as a sport and the athletes as athletes. Uh, and it just kind of relates to some of the stuff we've been talking about. And it's um, Sam Warburton. Uh, so uh, Welsh rugby, Cardiff Blues, British and Irish Lions has just released his autobiography. And that it's called open side if anyone wants to look it up and he says as he's, he came to the end of his career he said, and that's it no more sam warburton rugby player just sam kennedy warburton father husband son brother it's weird it's good rugby's what i did it was never who i was uh, and i i just want to uh, encourage anyone listening uh pick that up uh, he is a, it uh, seems to be anyway, I haven't spoken to him personally yet, but a great example of someone who had balance. Uh, he talks about emotion, uh, his willingness to cry. It took him a year before he didn't throw up every time he went to visit his girlfriend. Um, it just uh, a really good, uh, good open book. And he loved rugby, but it was never his identity. Uh, and so his transition since leaving rugby has been a lot smoother than than many athletes. So do have a look at that book if you get the chance, everyone. Uh, Mustafa, once again, great, uh, great to chat to you. I've really been looking forward to it. Uh, and actually, hopefully we can carry on this conversation because there were, there were questions we didn't get to and, and others that came up. So uh, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, no problem at all, Brian. Yeah, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. So uh, stay safe, stay well, and uh, we will hopefully talk to you again very soon. Yeah, you too. Thank you for joining us on this slightly longer version of Sing When You're Losing with the knowledgeable and congenial Mustafa Sakar. Please look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere you find your podcasts. If you found this helpful, please pass the word on and leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe or to check back for next week's exciting conversation. The world is a crazy and unpredictable place, so don't forget to sing when you're losing.